Uh, if you're visiting today, we're, we're glad that you are with us. Uh, this morning is the beginning of what has become known uh, as the Holy Week. Uh, this Friday, we will have a joint service with Resurrection, our sister church, and Harvest Presbyterian and uh, University Church, along with uh, our RUF campus minister, our RUFI campus minister, Justin and Jeff. And then, and then uh, we will have uh, Easter. We will celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, this next Sunday. But actually, Holy Week begins with our text today where we see the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is where Jesus is finally acknowledging who he is, that he is the king. And so our text has a lot to teach us this morning about what Christ's reign and rule means in our lives and the hope that we can have as believers as his reign and rule begins to work in and through us by faith. And so if you would, I'd like for you to turn uh, to our text this morning found in Matthew. This is found in all four Gospels. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a coat with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out to the city of Bethany, and he lies there. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, in these moments that we have together, we ask that you would reveal yourself to us. Uh, Lord, apart from your grace, apart from your spirit, uh, Lord, we cannot see, we cannot hear, I cannot speak. Father, there are those who are here this morning who desperately need to hear the good news of Christ's reign. 
But they need to see his reign as a loving king, as a king who is able, a king who is powerful, but a king who condescends to his people and loves and cares for them. So, Father, we ask uh, this morning that you would speak to our hearts, whether they're soft or whether they're hard. Lord, we ask for your grace and we ask for your presence at this time. And we ask it in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. On May the 4th, uh, John Larson and I will begin a series on two Old Testament prophets, Elijah and Elisha. Uh, And in my preliminary studies, we find these two prophets who are faithfully engaging God's people, the Jews, who had this incredible propensity to take the practices of the Canaanite religion and to blend it with the worship of Yahweh, uh, the Lord. Uh, The blending of the true faith revealed in God's word has become known as syncretism. And you're going to hear that word a lot. We're going to talk about how we syncretize the gospel, how we syncretize the true faith. Now what this word means is this. It is the effort to unite different religions, cultures, or schools of thought. We all have this tendency, and throughout the history of God's revealed will in His Scripture, it is our tendency to take a little bit of the Scripture and a whole lot of our ideas about God and about what we think the Christian life is. Now, one of the ways that we have seen that in our day particularly is is this idea of tolerance, which I do believe in, but we've seen it on the bumper sticker, coexist, right? And so what you have on that bumper sticker is all the major symbols of the religions of the world uh, that spell out coexist. Of course, the cross at the end is Christianity. And I don't mean to disparage that bumper sticker. In fact, I think there might be those who are actually... Uh, sincere about what they're saying. But the idea is this, to a certain extent, can't we all get along here? I mean, when it gets all down to it, all ideas are pretty much the same ideas. All religions are the same religions. We all go up the mountain, maybe different ways. But herein lies the problem. Those who believe in being syncretizing absolutely reject any idea, whether it's Christianity or not, or any worldview, or any way of thinking that says, that's incorrect. Uh, This is the way, and this is the truth. You see, the reason that the historic Christian faith seems to be intolerable is not because it's exclusive. Christianity, with Christ as the head of the church, is creating a people from every nation from every tribe, from every color, and from every socioeconomic class. The reason Christianity seems to be exclusive is because it's true, but it's not exclusive. And because it is true, God says to us, through His Word, that there is a Redeemer. And this Redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is both the Creator and the Redeemer, and all those who acknowledge His reign and His kingship know what life is. They find life in Him, in His death and His resurrection. So as we come to our our text today, 
What I want us to, to think about this as we think about the reign of Christ, that the true evidence of one's understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the faithful submission to him as king and our steady service uh, to him. That's the essence of what it means to be a Christian. Christianity is not about keeping Old Testament laws and rules. The laws and the rules are true and they're good. And all the ceremonial laws were true and good, but they're all pointing to our need for Jesus. And you cannot syncretize Jesus. You cannot blend his reign with your reign. And so really the gospel is offering to us the promise of if we submit ourselves to him, and not the rules and the regulations, that the indicatives of who Christ is and what he has done for us, all the imperatives of our life flow out of that. And it's the life of faith, not the life of rules. Now, again, I'm not saying they're not rules. The rules are there. But all the scriptures are pointing not to us, not to our performance, not to what we do, but they're all pointing to Jesus Christ who's revealed here, who's revealing himself as the king and ultimately as his savior through his death on the cross a few days later. But the essence of what it means to be a Christian is to submit to him. As we submit to him, there is a life that comes to us, and then we begin to know the joy of what it means to live out of what he has accomplished and who he is. Because you see, anything apart from that, anything apart from that does not bear fruit. It leads to a life of weariness or a life of guilt or a life of shame. And who doesn't have guilt and shame in this room this morning? J.C. Ryle was a bishop in the 18th century. Uh, he was uh, the, the bishop of the Church of England. And there was a lot of pomp and ceremony in the Church of England. In fact, he was greatly concerned uh, that many people uh, just reduced their whole Christian faith to that. Kind of a submission to uh, Christianity in a general sense versus who Christ is. And he says this about the church, but he also says it about individuals. And let me read this before I come to my points. He says, It is not every fruitless branch of Christ's visible church in a dreadful danger of becoming a withered fig tree. Beyond doubt it is, high ecclesiastical professions without holiness among the people, overweening confidence in councils and bishops and liturgies and ceremonies, while repentance and faith have been neglected, have ruined many a visible church in time past and yet will ruin many more. Where are the once famous churches of Ephesus and Sardis and Carthage and Hippo? They're all gone. They had leaves but no fruit. Our Lord's curse came upon them and they became withered trees. And then he goes further and says this. Finally, not every fruitless professor of Christianity I'm sorry, finally, is not every fruitless professor of Christianity in dreadful danger of becoming a withered fig tree? 
There can be no doubt of it, so long as a man is content with the leaves of religion, with a name to live while he is dead, and a form of godliness without the power, so long as his soul is a great peril. And so long as he is satisfied with going to church or chapel and receiving the Lord's Supper and being called a Christian while his heart is not changed and his sins not forsaken. You see, what he is saying is this. Is that holding the form of godliness, holding a form and believing in Christianity, going to church and doing the, believing the right things, is not the thing that changes us. What changes us, changes us is our understanding of Christ reign and rule because of his mercy and his love for us. And that's what we're going to see in this text. The, the, the goal of the text is to show you who Christ is and to submit to him. Uh, here's the first thing that we see uh, from our text. There's three things that we'll see. One is he's, he's the king that we all long for. We all long for a king, ultimately. And then secondly, uh, those who long for and respond to this king, we'll see in our text, are those who truly are hopeless. That's who will come. And then finally, those who submit are transformed, not, not by rules, not by regulations, not by this and that and his disappointment, but ultimately are transformed by his loving rule over our lives. That's how you're changed, is when you see him sovereignly ruling in your lives. So here's the first thing to see is this from our text. Uh, he is the king that we all long for. That is what is happening here in our text. Jesus, for, uh, throughout the Gospels, was, re, was hiding his reign, his kingship. But now he comes to Jerusalem, and he is acknowledging that he is indeed the promised Messiah, the coming one would not only be the savior of the Jews, but he would also be the savior of the world. That the Bible and the Old Testament were not pointing to biblical principles, even though they're there. I've been reading through Proverbs. It's a nice thing. Proverbs are good things to read. Very helpful. Uh, ultimately, it's not about the rules, the regulations. It's not about the stories. Everything, everything in the scripture is pointing to the person and work of Christ. And we see Jesus fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah. Because he is saying that all the scriptures are about me. Uh, what is amazing, uh, I could tell you hundreds of Old Testament prophecies that point to Jesus Christ. Uh, the book of Matthew was actually written, that I'm reading from, was written to Jews. And so you'll find most of the Old Testament prophecies uh, in, the, in the gospel of Matthew. Because Matthew is writing to Jews and he's saying, you have missed the point of the Old Testament. The point of the Old Testament is me. And so we see that Jesus is acknowledging his kingship and his reign. Now, <clears throat> let me say this. That this is what we long for. Jesus is saying that I am the king that you have always longed for. Uh, this person that we all look for, who on the one hand is mighty and great and executes justice, and on the other hand, is one who's loving and caring and forgiving and cares for us. This is what we long for. Now, that's hard for us to understand kingship because we live in a democracy. We live in a culture where we're looking for freedom and we're going to find our own freedom. But really, we live, uh, don't we, uh, kind of always in the sense that things are fragile in a democracy. Because we know the nature of man and we're always concerned 
that those who have rule over us will not do for our happiness and welfare, but those who would move to reign over us and have tyranny over us. So we live in a sense of insecurity in our lives because we're always looking for security, but we're also looking for justice, and we're looking for things to fit together. But ultimately, all of these things are pointing to the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what we long for, right? We long for justice. Uh, We long for people to be true and right in our own lives. And at the same time, we know that we long for people in our lives to love and care for us. Uh, Several examples of this would be the Father. It's very hard to talk about fathers in our culture today because, number one, we no longer believe in such thing as ordering families. But I've talked to many, many people over the years who have struggled because of their relationship with their fathers. And either people say, my father was too strict. He was overbearing. And there was no love, there was no concern. Or on the other hand, I have people say, tell me, well, I wish my father were more strict when I was growing up. Uh, he was the father who wasn't there. He was absent in my life. And so in the father we see uh, in our minds what we're longing for is absolute uh, person who is able to care and protect us, and then on the other hand, a person who is just and disciplines us. We see this in heroes. I mean, what do we want in a hero? We always want our heroes to be exactly who we think they are. We want George Washington to have never sinned, right? That the father of our nation is the one who actually uh, uh, didn't lie. He's the one who told the truth. And yet, when we begin to read things about our our heroes, we see that they're, they're men who have feet of clay. And it's always disappointing to us because that is what we long for in our lives. We long for someone who is able and capable, but also someone who is gracious and merciful. We see this in kings uh, throughout uh, the history. You look at, at kings, and, we're, and people are always looking for the perfect king. Shakespeare, uh, Henry V, you have this king who is, uh, uh, who is noble, who is um, powerful, but he's also concerned about justice. And so there's this great play. I heard there's a great movie. I haven't seen Henry V, uh, but you walk away from the movie and go, man, this guy, this guy is it. And yet what you discover about Henry V was that he actually murdered or or slaughtered his prisoners. But that's our longing. It it is this person who is is reigning and ruling in our lives, but is just and gracious. Well, we have this in the person of Christ. Jesus Christ is the king. He is the ruler. And yet we see in this king who rules and he reigns, he comes in to Jerusalem on a donkey, not executing justice and judgment, but giving himself for his people. Jesus is the lion and the lamb. You go to Revelation and we see that there is the lion, I mean the lamb who sits upon the throne. That's what we all long for. Now let me just say this before I move on. You can't put your faith in a Jesus who is not both the one who executes justice and the one who's absolutely merciful in caring. Second thing to see is this. 
He's indeed the king that we all long for. But he's also, those who long uh, for him are the ones who respond to him, are the ones who are truly hopeless. Notice what he says in verses 12 through 16. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant, and they said to him, Do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read, Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies have you prepared praise? So Jesus comes. People are acknowledging his reign. And this king is in processional, but when he ends his procession, it is not at a palace. It is not at the White House. It is not at the Capitol. But the procession ends at the temple of God. And when he enters, we see this humble king who is now on a rampage. We see him at the temple... And then when he comes into the temple, we see him angry, turning over the money changers. So why the temple and why his anger? Why the temple? Why does he come to the temple? Does this mean that God is only concerned about the spiritual things of this world? That he's not concerned about the everyday things that happen in our lives? That he comes and uh, he he goes to church. But to understand what's taking place here is in the very beginning when God created the garden, the garden was the temple of God. And when he created man, man was to dwell there in the presence of God and under his reign and rule to be vice regents with him to reign over all of creation. That we were called as human beings created in his image to reign with him. And so far be it that there's this disconnect between the spiritual realm and the physical realm. God created this earth as his temple that we would dwell together with him and in his presence have dominion over the earth. But Adam and Eve sinned against God. They did not acknowledge his reign and his rule, his power that he is able, and they also did not see him as good. And so they sinned, and when they sinned, they were cast out of the garden, into the world, apart from God, separated from him with a flaming sword that says man cannot come back. And so far be it that God is not concerned about the things of this world. He's very concerned about the things of this world. But the way back to God was through a future temple that he promised that there would be a way back. And that temple throughout the Old Testament was the dwelling place of God where men could come and enter into the presence of God and to continue the area of their life of redemption and reconciliation of the world. That temple is pointing to the person and work of Christ. And so Jesus comes to his temple. Because in a few short days, when he died, and the veil was rent, 
He enters us into the very presence of God through his work on our behalf. That's why he goes to the temple. Because you see, it is Christ's rule and reign over all of life through his people who are submitting their lives to him. But why is he angry? The reason that he is angry is because there were those who had perverted the understanding of the presence of God and turned it into a sideshow, the money changers, those who would sell the sacrifices uh, for, for gain. And so who came to the temple? Those who were wealthy, those who had the ability to pay the rich and the wealthy, that could pay for the perfect lamb. And those who made less money, they had other things that they could buy and they could purchase. But the whole idea of the temple was to point to Christ who says, you, can may, you may now enter in into my presence. And so what is his anger? His anger is this, that they were perverting the very gospel itself. And so he cast out the money changers. Because you see, when he does that, after everybody leaves, what is left of the blind and the lame who came to him in the temple? I mean, it's a fascinating scene. He, he overturns the money changers, and I guess they flee. And then the children come in, and they begin to sing Hosanna. They continue to sing Hosanna. And as, he is, as they're there and they're singing Hosanna, then the lame and the cripple, they come to him. So who's the gospel for? The gospel this morning is for those who need a Savior. Uh, those who have lamed themselves and blinded themselves by their own sin. Who is the gospel for this morning? The gospel is for those who are not in the middle. Who are going, I know I'm bad, but I'm not that bad. The gospel is for those who are broken, who are wounded. The gospel is for those who say, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. So that's who it's for. It's for the helpless. It's for the hopeless. But there's no use in coming if he's not the king who's, reign, who's, who's able to reign and rule in our lives. And finally, the thing to see is this. He, he is indeed the king we all long for. And those who long for and respond to this king are those who are truly hopeless. But finally, those who submit are transformed by his loving rule over their lives. Now, it's obvious that so many who came out to worship him came for different reasons. When he first comes in, there are people who are curious about who he is. Uh, he is the one who would come and he would conquer the Romans. And he is the one who would uh, uh, make our lives right and make our lives good. Exactly what they think he was is exactly the opposite of who he was. And so there are a lot of us who are curious about who he is. Uh, we come to Christ and... Uh, but then when things don't exactly turn out the way we want to, uh, then we turn on the dime. And we see this crowd who at one point was worshiping him and singing Hosanna when he does not end up being this conquering king to bring the life that they wanted, they say crucify him. And so it is with uh, us, many of us who find ourselves uh, disappointed with the way uh, we, we come to Christ and we think this is the way our lives will turn out, this is the way things are going to be in our lives, and they don't turn out that way. 
Because you see, God calls us to the cross. He calls us to himself uh, to submit our lives to him. So what does one look like who begins to submit and, and understand his loving rule and reign in their life? What does that look like in our lives? Well, we begin ourselves to bear his image. We ourselves become those who are brave, who are courageous. And at the same time, we're those who are meek and mild. We're those who are servants of Jesus Christ and servants of one another. You know, a lot of us, the way we live our lives is... is, um, we are either those who are working, uh, seeking to help those who are in need, but the reason we're helping those who are in need is because it helps us. It's kind of like a codependency. Or else we're those who um, I do, do not care at all about the needs of other people. So we tend to go one, or the, one way or the other, but when we come to Christ, we're both the servant who cares, not for the sake of what it means to us, but for the sake of that person as we come and minister uh, Jesus Christ. What does it mean for the reign of Christ in our lives? I, I think what it really means is the more you understand who he is, what he's done, what he's accomplished, that we begin to respond by faith, and our lives begin to take on his nature and who he is, and through what he has accomplished for us. Last week, uh, a couple of weeks ago, John, I'm sure, preached on Colossians chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 5. And um, Paul spends the whole book of Colossians talking about the indignities of, uh, of Christ and what he's done, what he's accomplished for us. And then he begins to give the imperatives, but the imperatives always follow the indignities. But in Colossians chapter 1, I mean chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says this, If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God and set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What the Apostle Paul is saying this is this, that when Christ died, you died with him. When he was raised, you were raised with him. And consider yourselves now as believers already seated in union with Christ. And he promises this, that when, when he appears, what we shall be will be revealed. In the process before that, we are to submit to him, to serve him, to honor him with our life. And we don't do that perfectly. Uh, we do that sometimes haltingly. Uh, sometimes we do that in ways that uh, there's not the power that we would like to see in our lives. But Paul tells us to set our mind on things above, and then when he appears, who we're going to be is going to be complete uh, in Jesus Christ. Let me close by, I was, by, by this uh, illustration here. A um, number of years uh, ago, uh, there was this... Uh, you know, the, the reality shows, the reality TV shows. Um, one was the, uh, what is it, the, the talent show. You've got talent. And, uh, and so, you know, they, the, the, the people come in and they kind of do their talent thing and 
they either mock them or they go, wow, this is, this is really great. And they're often judged by how they come in, right? And there was one guy whose name was Nick. And uh, he had on a cut-off T-shirt. He had on a hat that backwards. And they, they begin to roll their eyes. You know, the camera's on the judges. And um, so they asked him who he was. And when uh, he answered, he said, in a very country accent, he said, my name is Nick from Kentucky. And so they rolled their eyes more because they have had thousands of people who had come in uh, who uh, basically were not talented. And so here was Nick from Kentucky, had his hat on backwards, cut off T-shirt, blue jeans, uh, and very country. And when they uh, asked him what he was going to sing, he told them, they rolled their eyes again. And then Nick began to sing. And when Nick began to sing, it was so amazing that the judges began to weep because of what they were hearing coming from this guy. Now let me tell you <laughs> that this is exactly what is to come for us, for us. Right now in this life, uh, we look like Nick from Kentucky. Uh, we're not the servants we, we want to be or, or should be. Our faith is weak. Our faith is uh, waning. But as we put our faith in Christ, who's the king, and we don't put our faith in the principles and the rules, then he begins to transform us. He begins to make us more and more like him. And there's this power that begins to usher into our lives that creates the great life. But his rule and his reign begins to make us that way. But one day when he comes, who we are and complete in him will appear one day. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, as we come to the Lord's uh, Supper, you come to him as your king, as your reigning king. Uh, you come to him who is the one who rules. And as you submit your life to him, he will do great things in and through you. Let's pray together. Lord, we, uh, <clears throat> we thank you for who you are. Uh, we thank you for your word and the Lord Jesus that's revealed in your word. And so, Lord, we ask that we would see you this morning as we come to the Lord's table, that we would see you highly lifted up on our behalf. And yet we pray that we would see you right with us as we hear those words, this is my body, which is for you. So, Lord, we ask that you would continue to work in us and through us. And, Father, we pray for those who are here today that are looking for uh, someone to save them, someone to protect them, someone to watch over them. Uh, Lord, that they would see that in Jesus Christ as people uh, come in faith and repentance. And so, Lord, we pray that you would uh, bless our time as we come to this supper. And we ask it in your name and for your sake. Amen. So, sir.